Welcome to The Sustainable Life. I'm here with Bill Benenson again. Bill, how are you doing? Doing well, thank you, and I hope you are too. I am, and I've been looking forward to hearing about how things went, because yours was, it was kind of on the fence if things would happen or not, because it sounded like it might have been some outside of your control, but I heard enthusiasm too. Can you remind us, if you don't mind jumping into what you did, mm-hmm. before you say what you did, do you remember when I asked what the environment meant to you, what you talked about, what you shared? Well, I can certainly talk about the environment and what it means to me and thoughts that have followed from our discussion. And basically, I feel that I'll go back a bit. I had a conversation with a friend who said that we should look at the environment and nature as replacing what had been the concept that we would have individual either redemption or life eternal with our belief in the various religious systems that offered us uh, salvation if we followed their guidelines in effect. And I think that what is changing is that we're looking at the planet and this incredible place that we've been given and know that we're endangering it and that we're making the future for the planet and for certainly for ourselves, homo sapiens, incredibly endangered and that it is our job and our role on the planet to try to rectify that or to ameliorate it or to make, if possible, make things better in a very challenged world. So to me, the environment is has become, if it wasn't before, an understanding of our role in this natural process and know that the sixth or seventh extinction could come from ourselves and we've got to fight that you know your movie as well as the stuff i've read of other indigenous cultures and and worlds or uh, cultures makes me you talked about how nature is replacing religion or or, uh, filling in a role that religion held but before religion nature was there like i don't know the religious situation of what happened over 10,000 years ago and before 300,000 years ago. I don't think, I don't know if we have access to that, but it feels like there weren't like giant cathedrals and churches and organized religions. So there was something, whatever, if there's anything there, I felt like it got supplanted. Maybe there's, we can restore that or rediscover something that was there. Right. Actually, I didn't ask you about religion. I don't think I asked you about religion in Hadza. Did and I know that when I read about the San, they talk, there are all these stories about trickster gods and they had a very different role in their lives than modern religions do in ours today. Did you get a taste of that when you were there? The religious analogies or processes that I saw, that I understood they were partaking of were the dances at night, the singing and dancing at night. 
which was mesmerizing and beautiful. And the stories they told would come from sitting around the fires at night and telling stories and or singing, dancing, enacting stories of their ancestors. I, I don't know that it, it was more of a mythology that we had some animation in our film, The Hadza Last of the First. But what I saw myself, what we watched while we were there and making the film was their dancing, singing, and dancing at night around the fires. And speaking of that dancing and singing, and also the making the clothing and the jewelry, mm -hmm. I presume that they didn't have dance lessons and singing lessons, <laughs> but it was incredible. I presume they just grew up singing and it was just culturally passed down of like, here's how to do it. And it looked like it was just, some of it looked like just fun. They're just having fun. Yeah, I think a lot of what they did was fun for them. I think one of the most touching and human moments in the film was the little boy who was probably just around perhaps a bit over a year old who was playing with his absolutely miniature bow and arrow and running after the arrow that he had shot off. And to me, that was just so amazing that you'd be teaching a little boy how to shoot a bow and arrow long before uh, he could talk or moments after he learned to walk. And I think that's indicative of how they teach everything. They just do it and they fall into these patterns very quickly and joyfully. Yeah, it reminds me of, uh, it makes me think, like a lot of times I'll talk to people about how much I cook and how much I love it. And they say, well, a lot of parents don't have time to cook. And I'm thinking, do you watch TV with your kids? Because I think cooking you can is something to do with the kids. I'm not a parent, so I'm speaking in some ignorance here, although I, I did have parents. I, well, I still do have parents. Right. And I think the way I think of it in my head is if your kid, and it comes from, partly from Hadza and is if your kid by a young age doesn't know how to handle sharp knives, mm -hmm. they've missed out on something. Mm -hmm. That's something that we should, I don't want to say should, but I'm glad when I was a kid, I knew how to handle a knife. Mm -hmm. Well, they, to me, teaching a one-year-old how to shoot a bow and arrow was uh, <laughs> just so amazingly indicative of their culture and the way in particular with the boys more than with the girls this i'm jumping around a bit but if a girl decides as i don't know a young teenager or at eight or nine years old that she wants to go down to the communal school below their mountain range, Ayada, they can go down, go to school. If they don't like it, they come back up and they are integrated easily back into the Hadza groups, their small subgroups or the tribe. And on the other hand, if a boy decides for some reason, well, I don't like it, 
or I'm going to be forced to go to school, as some of the young boys were, we showed, they can be really harmed in relation to their position in the tribe because a lot of the boys' prowess or their importance or their integration comes from whether they're good hunters or not. And you don't just become a good hunter by accident. It, it takes years of training and doing it. And if they miss out on that, they can be severely limited in their role going forward in the group, in their tribe. And it's a really heavy differential between the girls who have in one way, the fluidity they have, of course, until they have children. But for a boy to drop out of the learning that they have going out and hunting every day with their fathers or extended family, it's really a difference. Did you by any chance read The Dawn of Everything? No, I know of it. I haven't read it. Yeah, I'm in the middle of it. It's a long book. And it talks a lot about the different structures and societies and the, the wealth and complexity of different ways that societies have grown up in different have grown in different ways. Mm -hmm. And uh, well, all right, so I won't pursue that direction. But I, there's another book that I read recently that has really got me. There's a book called The Moral Case for Fossil Fuels. Mm. And it's a guy who makes a case that we should be using more and more fossil fuels. <laughs> and it's a lot based in Milton Friedman and Rand. And so leadership means understanding. I try to understand perspectives that I'm not familiar with. Right. So I watched this, this series from, I think, the 70s or 80s that Milton Friedman did for, I think, PBS. And there's a, he shows, I didn't try to memorize this, but I think you remember that he showed some American mills, some uh, mills to make, I don't know, Blankets or, or rugs or uh, textiles. Right. And then they showed some newer Chinese mills that had bigger and more powerful mill uh, rug making machines or textile making machines. And he shows the picture. I think I remember this right. He shows the pictures of the American ones to the Chinese ones. And they're like, look, they're like quaint. They're these old fashioned ones. They're not as big as ours. They can't produce as much. Mm -hmm. And he says, this is the value of innovation and markets and allocating resources is that the economy grows, everybody benefits. And that's why we should do these things, is to produce more. Then he shows an Indian textile mill. And he says, now here, there are these strong protectionist tariffs. And it's backward. It takes more people to make fewer of these things. And they're not as high quality. Mm -hmm. And this is what happens. We, it doesn't grow as much. Right. And then I think of the Hadza sitting around making their jewelry. And I'm thinking... They're not making it to grow the economy. They're doing it because it's enjoyable in its own right. Right. And I think, let's say we automate that. And now we can make more of them, but they're not as valuable because we didn't make them. And what are we doing instead with our time? We've been liberated from making things that are craft. Mm -hmm. And now we can go off and do something else. But what do we do else? I can't. I started trying to think of things that people haven't tried to automate. Mm -hmm. And we just keep automating and automating and automating and making more and more and more stuff that is ostensibly growing well it's growing the gdp and on paper it's making our lives better but i keep if that's the case then we should be living 
infinitely better than the Hadza. Yeah. Because we've had something like 10,000 years of progress, certainly 200 years since the Industrial Revolution. We should be just far and away. There should be no comparison. And I can't help but think of how it must be great to live like the Hadza. <laughs> and, you know, in physics, where I have my PhD, we have people come up with theories. And we like when there's a really beautiful theory because we think nature is beautiful. And a theory that explains nature should be beautiful too. Right. Now, we also have this principle that if you make the theory must be able to make a prediction. If it makes a prediction and nature behaves differently than the prediction, it doesn't matter how beautiful the theory is. It's wrong. Nature is right. The theory is wrong. Mm -hmm. I think economists, they make predictions with their theories. And I think if nature is different than the theories, they insist that nature is wrong and the theory must be right. All right. And I'm being a little glib here, but this theory that says that we must be making progress doesn't seem to fit. No, I don't think I've seen people much happier than the Hadza were, and certainly comfortable in, from what I could tell, in their environment. And their world was rich in their interactions. The women were much more cohesive in a way because they would go out together and during the day and dig for tubers. And they seemed to have this extraordinary camaraderie and laughing banter and raising, bringing their children along. There's a scene where they handed another one-year-old, like almost a machete-sized knife that he brings from the mother over to someone else. And it was astounding to me. They gave, talking about knives and being brought up without knowing about knives. They have this child running around with this <laughs> huge knife. It's length, his length. And they are so comfortable with everything they do together, it was uh, very joyous. And they, it was backbreaking labor, and they seemed to have been extremely comfortable doing it. I don't want to be paternalistic or anything, but they certainly were in, seemed to be enjoying themselves a great deal. Yeah, and I think of, you know, I was trying to think of what things did we haven't automated. We don't keep trying to automate away. Mm -hmm. But it, we get down to watching TV and these very passive things. No wonder there's so much addiction because what's left? We keep automating everything. And one of the things that the dawn of everything talked about was how many different cultures found ways of, as best we could tell, thriving in many, many, many different ways, sometimes with central authorities, sometimes not, sometimes scavenging, sometimes in cities. And there's so many varieties of things in cultures that, as best we could tell, persisted for centuries, sometimes millennia. And they have cities with hundreds of thousands of people in them without the wheel. Mm -hmm. And we think we need to innovate nonstop in order just to keep from collapse. Mm-hmm. And I appreciate your following this tangent with me. 
No, not at all. You're talking about our sort of attenuating ourselves out of being active at all. And then if we don't have any activities, then what are we going to do? Turn into vegetables or something that sit in front of a tube. And it's a kind of scary science fiction projection that you're making. Yeah, I wonder what people would have thought of our world today in the 50s or 50 years ago or 70 years ago or 100 years ago or 200 years ago. I know, I remember a scene from a film that I thought was remarkable. It was called The Black Robe. And it's with missionaries in Canada, actually, who were the first missionaries to meet the indigenous people there, probably in the 17th century, I would guess, maybe the early 18th century. Anyway, there's one little medicine man who's very opposed to having these priests come out to them. And he somehow picks up that the missionaries have a a secret way of communicating. And so what is demonstrated is they show him that they can transmit an idea without speaking it. So what they do is they write something down. He tells them some secret. They write it down. They hand it to the other missionary, and then he reads it out loud, but without having spoken it between the two of them. And at that point, the medicine man decides that these missionaries are incredibly evil because they have black magic and they have to be expelled and and killed. (laughs) I thought it was an extraordinary demonstration of cultures not being able to understand each other and have an innovation that would be magical from the other side's perspective. A wealth of things out there. And that is not like, oh, you don't want to be full on capitalist, you must be a communist. So there's this false dichotomy that we fall into. So I want to go back to your experience. I remember you sharing about a green oasis, a green ocean that you're that you really loved being in. Cause I think that led into what your challenge was or what your commitment was. Do you remember what you committed to? Yeah, we had a broken pot that with a plant that we had, and I rescued the plant, and I'm in the process of gluing together the pot and putting the plant in, which maybe I can do tomorrow because actually the glue got borrowed, but I've kept the plant alive. So I'm I'm smiling because... I was wondering, so I think you might have done it, you might not have done it had we not had the conversation, but because we had the conversation, you were very much more likely to do it. Right. I, it will get done. Oh, that, I'd like that determination. <laughs> the, can you tell me about the, that shift to what you've done so far? Mm-hmm. Was it connected? Did it feel, did, 
bring alive this the feelings that you get from being in the green ocean, the oasis that you're in? Yeah, I bought another plant that was called, well, I guess one of its commons name, common names is a silk plant. And I actually have it in my shower at home, our shower upstairs. And there I have another plant in the shower. And it feels like I've made a greenhouse within our home. And I like the connection between the outside and inside with house plants. They, this plant that with the pot that broke had been inside and it wasn't doing well. So we moved it outside. And then we had this freak windstorm and it got knocked over and that's when the pot was broken. And it seems to me to be a participatory act of working with nature in a, I think we haven't used this phrase, but I was talking with my wife, Lori, about it. And we are in a lot of ways, and along this conversation, (laughs) these lines, we are a lot symbolic manipulators. That's a great deal of what a lot of us do. And it's so much more rounding and fulfilling in a lot of ways. If you do more than just sit at these computers and do symbolic manipulation in one form or another. And so connecting with plants is a very visceral and tangible way of not just interacting with the world through extensions that are Even if you're in an automobile and a car, you're driving with a wheel. And there's a lot (laughs) that distances us from some of the things that are both rewarding and primal that can't be substituted. Primal. I really like that word. I think I'm going to, I haven't been using it. I think I'm about to start using it. (laughs) Okay. Well, this, the, particular specific action that you took with this, the broken pot and that plant and keeping it going so far and the plans to come. Right. Has it given you, has that specific action, a set of actions brought an emotional journey? What has been the emotional experience of doing it from the very beginning when we were last talking to through doing it till now? Well, I think every time that I do something with a plant or even watering plants, there there seems to be something happening that is in a different league or realm than other communicative processes. And particularly if I am also working with dirt, with putting a plant in somewhere, protecting a plant, that creates a union that is exceedingly important. But I I should also add that We're very fortunate here in Los Angeles to have 
within a mile of our house, the beginning of the, the outer edge of Topanga State Park and a huge wilderness, almost, well, not wilderness really, but a wild outdoor area in the mountains, Santa Monica Mountains. And my wife and I, or I, go hiking on average three times a week, uh, sometimes more. We go up into the mountains and we, it's not serious hiking by any stretch, but it's walking to get out and be on a dirt path, not just paved roads. And I'd say in many ways, I would not feel almost human without being able to do that. I, I would feel very strange, which is why for me, a lot of cities are very difficult to to spend a lot of time in. I feel disassociated from even nature somewhat tamed within an urban setting, even though the Santa Monica Mountains are pretty unhumanized in except their trails through. But it does make a tremendous difference to me, to us, to be able to, or the necessity to go out and, and hike through that, these areas. This is touching and, and primal. And the, now you're also talking about your general experience with dirt and mountains and grass and that was there before this commitment. And I'm also curious if this commitment changed, had an effect beyond what you, I don't want to say ordinary, but your lifelong experience with dirt. And well, dirt. I think our conversation and specifying doing this and relating and tying it in together is an enrichment of these experiences that have the articulation of the process and digging into it is valuable and part of enriching it. So I think that this is useful and part of the process of feeling more connected also comes from our conversation about it. I'm glad to hear this is the technique that I endeavor to bring to people. Most people have less of what you describe as like a daily experience or multiple times weekly experience of, of putting themselves into nature. And so I, some people have some really profound experiences with this. Did, did you involve other people in the process or did doing this connect with others in a different way than you would have otherwise? I would say it's not terribly connected with others. I'd say it's, mostly doing it personally or trying to make sure it gets done personally. So it, I haven't really fully connected, done this in a very interconnected way. Not really. I've talked about it, but it hasn't really, I haven't done it in a communal way. I'm just curious to see how it went in that way. So it sounds like you said it will get done. So I really hope to reconnect with you to hear about after it's done and right. what happens and how that affects this indoor-outdoor 
connection? Well, I think it's a particularly good paradigm about how holding nature, in this case, a, a plant that was in a pot, a container that was broken and that I'm endeavoring to glue it back together and make sure that the plant is contained and healthy enough to uh, survive because it's in a container. You reminded me of a plant. A friend came over. How long ago was it? A year ago, maybe? And I tell people not to bring disposable things and not to bring packaged stuff. And he brought me a plant. And I was like, oh, that's an obligation. Mm -hmm. I don't want this thing. But I oftentimes I decline accepting gifts. But this time I accepted it. And maybe a month ago, I repotted it because it had grown so much. And so I put it in a much bigger pot. And it's a pot that I found somewhere. So it's, you know, more found things. Right. And I haven't yet done it because I want it to go a little bit more. And I want to take a picture of it and send it to him. And he won't recognize it because it's so much bigger. Wow. That's great. <laughs> yeah. And I have to recognize, like, lots of people repot plants every day. And I'm 50 and I'm just starting this. As a kid, one of the chores around the house was to water plants. So I'm not foreign to it. But right. Yeah. So it's one of the things that kept me doing it for so long was feeling like I didn't know what I was doing. And what got me going was just getting one plant. And then once I got that one down, that was getting another plant. Actually, other plants started growing, like uh, volunteers started growing in there. Right. And then, yeah, just doing it. I would, all I had to do was get a plant a long time earlier, and I could have gotten started earlier. <laughs> Talking to you, I want to put a lot more plants on my shelf now, on my windowsill now. This happens a lot. I get inspired back by my guests. When we did our film, our first major environmental film, the movie, I remember we had a lot of people who said it affected their lives. But I know I had one friend who said, I've just decided I'm putting plants in my window here in my apartment in Brooklyn. It was like, that's it. I'm not going to not I'm going to do something important for me. It's not big for the world, but I just got to have something growing here. Well, I appreciate you sharing this, and I look forward to hearing the rest of it, of what's to come. Is there anything I didn't think to ask? I'll probably wrap up here. Okay. No, I think this, look, I think this conversation, our dialogue is really stimulating and interesting, and I look forward to continuing it. I'm honored and flattered and feel exactly the same way. Great. And thank you for reaching out. Yeah, I think you started it with the movie. So thank you for putting that out there. It's been anyone who talks to me now knows how formative it's been to me. And that's just something I've seen in, in a 50 year life. It's very recent, but it's been very, that plus the James Sussman stuff about the, the son and then Robin Kimmerer with braiding sweetgrass mm -hmm. and then the dawn of everything. Uh, yeah. It's really in, it just completely opened up this view that I bought into the mainstream view of, a thousand years ago, medieval serfs, they were living in mud and it was all dying at 30 and that was old age. And going farther back, it must have been worse. Mm -hmm. And it's just eye-opening and, and refreshing and optimistic or creating optimism that it wasn't necessarily, that it wasn't that way. I guess there were some pretty rough places to live in, times to live in. But I think a lot of, earlier societies, and the Hadza are an example, there's a lot of infant mortality. Mm -hmm. 
But if you make it through that crucible, a lot of people lived a long time and lived a healthy life. They could. There were always challenges, but some of the Hadza live into their 70s and 80s or maybe beyond because they don't count their years. You never really know. I would suggest, as I mentioned to you before, that Richard Wrangham's book, our prime interviewer, host in the Hadza last of the first, his book, Catching Fire, How Cooking Made Us Human, is a very interesting book about our early evolution as uh, pre-Homo sapiens into becoming Homo sapiens through, I mentioned his thesis, that it was cooking that transformed us from being a non-hominid primate into becoming Homo sapiens ultimately because it so gave us so many more calories, which enlarged or almost tripled the size of our brain or cranial capacity over the space of 500,000 years, that this was the single most powerful tool to transform us into who we have become. Well, it's on the list. I just started this 600, no, how many pages is this? Over 600 page biography of Abraham Lincoln. Wow. It has won all kinds of awards. And I realized I don't know much about Lincoln besides like the main stuff and I saw the movie. Right. So it's going to take me a while to finish it. Plus I'm writing my own book, but I'll get to it. You're busy. Yeah. And, but it does sound relevant and interesting in its own right. No, it is. It's a very interesting way of saying, well, somehow we did become quite different. And in many ways, as a layman, I think the almost tripling in size of our cranial capacity, the growth of our brain, does seem to correspond with the tremendous differentiation between ourselves and chimpanzees or gorillas. I would imagine if someone, if a being dropped in from outer space from another galaxy and looked at us physiologically in relation to chimpanzees or gorillas, they would see hardly any difference, virtually none at all. And yet, if they delved into us a bit more, I think they would find that there is a substantial difference between our outputs, what we've created externally beyond just eating and reproducing. Was it Fantastic Fungi that had that animation of the cranial capacity expanding? We had it in, I think, in Dirt the Movie. And I, I, yeah, I remember seeing that. I was like, that's really cool. That, like, to see it in between stages. Right. All animated. I'll have to watch again both uh, those films, which I haven't seen in a while. But it is definitely extraordinary on a time frame, 500,000 years is on the in relation to the earth is nothing it is fairly substantial in the length of time of one species or another we're a new species we're a new subspecies or and certainly 
if you were to measure the differences between ourselves and our closest ancestors, I think the differential between the size of our brains in relation to the size of our body would be very significant. Also, we have a much smaller gut, which is because we don't need to spend, our gut doesn't need to spend all day long trying to digest bamboo. Now, speaking about eating and things like that, I realized there's a question I have to ask about the Hadza that I should have asked a long time ago. And if you don't want to, if you want to decline or you don't know, so be it. Courtship and sex. Mm-hmm. They're outdoors most of the time. Do, do you get a, a sense of that? Because I don't think you cover it in the movie. No, we don't. We were told that if a boy and a girl like each other, and I think they get the wife's, the woman's mother to agree that they can be together, they're married. I don't think that there's any particular clan, extreme rituals. It sounded very practical and not too complicated. And is there premarital sex? And is there, if there's no ceremony with the community and a contract signed, is it more fluid? I would guess so. I think also they can dissolve their union by just having the man take up with another woman or move out. We didn't really get into that too much because the Alyssa Crittenden, our other anthropologist, who was very knowledgeable about the women, didn't really want to go into their, or maybe it wasn't so much she didn't want to go into it. We didn't press her on it because it didn't seem that it was going to be something she was comfortable telling us. And I I can't really tell you why now that I didn't probe about that. It just, it seemed external to what we were covering with them. And I know that they're parts of their religious ceremonies that they're very private about. And I think Alyssa told us she didn't really offer us a lot of insights into their private lives and how their courtship and mating decisions, practices were carried out. Darn, because there's all these questions come up about what level of privacy, because if they don't have walls and just grass huts and outdoors all the time and lots of questions. No, there are. No question about it. I don't know. Maybe I'm prudish. Maybe I didn't push hard enough on some of those questions. I felt it was, I don't know. I didn't think, other than putting Alyssa on the spot, we were going to be able to demonstrate any real knowledge about that. They chose who they wanted to be with. They seemed very fluid in their decisions. And that was an area that, call it my shortcomings for not trying to get into their personal lives more than we did. Perhaps a future documentary. Perhaps. (laughs) Private Lives of the Hadza.
Well, let's wrap up there. Okay. And we may record next time. Whether we record or not, I look forward to talking more. I do too. Thank you so much. Thank you. How many people are bringing a message of joy from what everyone calls saving the environment, but I call the future? Step by step, this podcast is creating a culture of joy, community, and connection around sharing and acting on our environmental values. Again, there's no profit in buying and wasting less, but we'll all love our lives and relationships more when we do. I can use your support. Please donate at joshuaspodick.com slash donate. Again, that's joshuaspodick.com slash donate.